What? What is this? What, what are we doing? What in God's name are we doing? What? Our lives. What, what kind of lives are these? My guest today is Daniel Cohen. He's the director of the economics department at the Ecole Normale Superior in Paris, a founding member of the Paris School of e- Economics, and a former advisor to the World Bank. He's also author of the new book, The Infinite Desire for Growth, which he joins me today to talk about. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hello, welcome. Thanks for the invitation. I'm going to start, again, delighted to have you here. I'm going to start with the uh, actually the first paragraph of your book, which I think is actually gives a, a pretty nice summary of where you're coming from. So let me just take 30 seconds to read a couple sentences. Economic growth is the religion of the modern world, the elixir that eases the pain of social conflicts, the promise of indefinite progress. It offers a solution to the everyday drama of life, to wanting what we don't have. Sadly, at least in the West, growth is now fleeting, intermittent. It comes and goes with bust following boom and boom following bust, while an ideal world of steady, inclusive, long-lasting growth fades away. So I think that that sets up, I think, where you're coming from and uh, and sort of the central, you know, sort of attention in your book. But before we get to that, the first part of the book, you, you spend quite a bit of time just outlining sort of how we got from there to here, how we got from a, a world of no growth to a world of growth. And it's a topic we've discussed many times on this podcast, but I want to sort of start off by getting sort of your view. What do you view as the most plausible explanation why the world was very, very poor 200 years ago and is not very, very poor today? Well, yes, I think, first of all, uh, I want to to correct in this first part of the book the impression that that is usually, um, you know, uh, taken that that uh, growth only really started in, let's say, the 18th century. This is absolutely true when it comes to growth of income per head, definitely. Until the 18th century, I would say the, the huge mass of the population of the world was trapped into what is called the Malthusian trap. That is, people would, would remain at a basic level of poverty, which is more or less the one that you would see today in the very poorest region of the world at about one, two dollars per, per day. That has been the rule for most of human history, I mean, certainly over the last 10,000 years. But that doesn't mean that nothing happened uh, during those 10,000 years. In reality, what happened was that a population grew uh, very rapidly uh, from the dawn of uh, the agricultural uh, age until the industrial world. But that growth, uh, which came with growth of technology, I mean, the, the, you had a lot of technologies that were invented uh, by mankind over those 10,000 years with, with, uh, with among other things, uh, uh, writing and uh, and the art of, of of metallurgy and even agriculture obviously was was the center of many many innovation, but that was dissipated into population growth. That is, as soon as as the population would start to live 
above the minimum level, as Malthus, you know, sort of demonstrated in the late 18th century, and it appears to be true as long as, you know, as, as you look at, again, the, the, the mass of the population, then that was translated not in an increase of income per head, but then in increasing population. Those dynamics were very powerful, and they give us a measure, an implicit measure of how much inventivity they were uh, in those earlier civilizations. In fact, according to one of, uh, of, of the studies that I quote, it could have been that population growth was really on, 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 the, on the path of an explosion uh, for about the 21st century if something extraordinary did not happen. And that thing extraordinary was over the 19th century, along with the Industrial Revolution, something which is called the demographic transition, by which suddenly, and I would say totally unexpectedly, uh, uh, women started, at least in the West, uh, to begin with, and, and, and then along the, 21st, the 20th century, uh, along most regions of the world, women started to have less children. And this has created the condition for a new kind of growth by which it is not the number of people that increase, but the number of, of the, the, the quantity of income per head that has really uh, been uh, starting to grow. So there is a discontinuity, but there's also a lot of continuity in the way by which mankind took possession of the earth mostly out of population growth and, and started to change the rule of the game into what we call the Industrial Revolution, which again would have been completely different if it was not accompanied by this demographic transition, which according to the, to the wording of the Gary Baker professor at Chicago meant that as far as children were concerned, we've moved from a world of quantity to a world of quality. He had in mind quality of children. So I guess this, this makes us somehow the heir of the previous civilization as much as uh, revolutionaries uh, when it when it comes to to this this change of, of, of parameters. Right. So 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 it wasn't a so it's not a case obviously that sort of nothing was happening before 1800. A lot of stuff happened. You mentioned there were a, there was a lot of uh, invention innovation. Not to mention. Uh, you had the agricultural revolution, but we were unable to sort of break out of that uh, trap, the Malthusian trap. But suddenly, in, in sort of the late uh, 18th century, uh, we began to break out of that tra trap. And, Absolutely. Right. And, 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 and again, sort of the, for you, the, mo the most persuasive argument for the Industrial Revolution is sort of the what they call, is the high income high income argument that there were very high incomes in in Great Britain uh, and there and there and therefore that led uh, that that led to sort of invention and because you just couldn't rely on a lot of cheap labor. Right, exactly. Something took place. There's so many things that could that took place simultaneously around those 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 years, the 17th and the 18th century, that it's very difficult to disentangle them. And and I think it's it's better to think of a change of regime really uh, rather than than trying to pinpoint the, the the various causes. But certainly, there's been a lot of changes that took place. I just mentioned the demographic transition. Usually, the economists say that it is the outcome of of the industrial revolution itself, but just to give you an example, the most populated nation in Europe in the 18th century was France, and France started its demographic transition in the mid-18th century, that is, a good 50 years, somehow almost a century before, really, the Industrial Revolution. 
The major breakthrough, obviously, came in the 17th century with the scientific revolution, the, the revolution of Galileo, of course, of Newton later on, which somehow gave the instrument to master the, the law of physics, and that became very important uh, in the second half of the 19th century when, when you need to further the technology that were developed and science become very important. Uh, and, and you had, of course, the Enlightenment, the French Enlightenment uh, uh, in the 18th century that, that made the pursuit of happiness, and that was in, obviously in the American Constitution coming from those Enlightenment thinkers at the center of the game, which, which was perhaps also why the French started their demographic transition a bit earlier than the other countries because they were the country of, of those Enlightenment years. But all this together showed that there was really what we would call today as economies, a change of regime. Right. Science, free market, the pursuit of happiness, all that created an entirely new combination, which was obviously totally different from the old one, which was uh, technology, slow technological progress, population growth, and a mostly feudal society in which only the upper upper uh, uh, range of the population would, would benefit from a sort of happiness. So, of so, so, so the most... I guess the, the simplest or most persuasive explanation then why we didn't see that sort of industrial revolution, the economic takeoff earlier, uh, you know, Rome, why didn't it start in Rome? Why didn't it have in China, which had great and advanced empires? Why, why did we not see it earlier? So, and the Arab world as well. Yeah. So exactly. So in the case of Rome, I think it's 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 a, it's, a, it's fairly simple. The Romans had a lot of slaves. Uh, if only because they were conquerors and 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 for a long time uh, they they would br bring from those wars a lot of slaves and they discover that uh, well they didn't have to be very uh, technological you know technologically sorry inventive uh, because uh, they had the slave to do basically all, all the basic, basic tasks that they needed and somehow something similar occurred with, with the Greeks. The Greeks. So, so it's interesting, there was a lot of, of innovation prior to the Roman Empire and in fact prior to the Greek civilization. The Iron Ages started a thousand years before Christ, but it sort of stopped because there's something different uh, set up. In the case of China, it's interesting because a lot of Chinese historians said that in the 13th century, there was something like an industrial revolution uh, starting. Uh, there was, a, there was a, you know, the, 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 the very, you know, combination of of the transformation of invasion in, 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 in metallurgy, in, in, in the steam engine, was sort of almost there, we were starting to develop. But the thing is that the Mongols conquered China, destroyed everything, and there was something like a new Middle Age when it came to, to China that started at this, at this point. But when you look at all the technologies that the Europeans used in from starting at from, from, from the end of the Middle Age, that is the Renaissance years in the 15th and 16th century, initially the major technology, compass, printing press, uh, uh, um, and, and, and the art of, uh, of, of powder, uh, all came from from um, from uh, artillery uh, came from from China. So 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 it's really not a unique European event. It's really the the, the culmination of of many centuries of innovation. And yes, it came in Europe, 
for, for many reasons, uh, having to do with Christopher Columbus, having to do with the fact that we had a Galileo and, and then it would take us really uh, very far in this discussion to understand why it was specifically Europeans. And then you had a Newton, why it was specifically uh, British would also be complicated. But you had this, somehow the stars were aligned, just for ones, and that was enough to, to create this burst of creativity. But again, really building up upon the work of the previous civilization of the entire Eurasia. Now, now, the thrust of your book is really more about growth today and, and sort of growth in the future. Uh, on the podcast, we've had we've had uh, Robert Gordon, Joe Machier, we've had Eric Brynjolfsson, Deirdre McCloskey, uh, a lot of people with different views about sort of where growth is heading and what growth will look like. So... Where, where do you come down? Are you sort of in the Robert Gordon camp where not only will growth slow, but what growth there is will sort of be concentrated at the top? Or are you more of an optimist thinking we're on the verge of a, a new uh, technological revolution and that there'll be a lot of growth? I mean, I suppose I suppose the first paragraph I read gives a little hint of where you're at. But I wonder if you could outline your beliefs there. Yeah, right. No, I, I sort of I sort of stand in between, really. And I will try to explain exactly what it means. But indeed, in effect, the first paragraph and and, and the way I sort of, uh, of understanding why is it that we are so willing to grow, you know, needs to do this, this parallel with what happened before. There's nothing new in this quest for growth. It's only the way in which it is expressed, which is which is really new. As, as far as, as, as the diagnosis on, on economic growth today, I, I think that the, the optimistic and the pessimistic are somehow both right. Gordon really said that over the past 40 years, there's been little technological growth when it comes, let's say, to the middle class or when it comes to the average income per, per worker. And I think he's, he's right. Uh, I mean, the data are there to demonstrate that. What, what somehow I think he fails to understand is it that there's been so much technological progress with so little uh, growth of, of, of income per, per worker. And I think the explanation has to do with the fact that really what happened over the past 40 years was, as he says, not a new consumer society, really. Uh, if, you, if, you, if you stop, let's say, the analysis in 2007 when, when Steve Jobs uh, invents uh, the, uh, the iPhone, when you stop the, the analysis there, it's really about the same thing as before, but they are somehow optimized in the way they are used. If you think of, you know, what the new technologies allows us to do, it's really to, be, to, to cut uh, costs. It's really to be more efficient. It's really about, you know, making sure that a worker is always doing something with, with you know, uh, with many uh, computers uh, uh, and, and many screens that he can use. But it's not a new civilization. It's still cars. It's still the same planes. Uh, it's still the same TVs. But there are more things into it. Uh, but but it's not a breakthrough. And 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 in a sense, what these technologies have, have essentially done is allow, I would say, the firms to entirely re-engineer themselves. In the old industrial world, you had a sort of you know big firms where the workers is the the, the engineers, the, the CEOs, they were sort of working together in big firms, vertically integrated, uh, which is also why they had so little inequalities in those days, because basically all wages were indexed on one another and you had the fantastic growth with zero inequalities, uh, you know, uh, cracking the, 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 the overall picture. 
starting in 1980 and, and, and with, the, with the event of the new technology and of internet, what has really happened is that the, 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 the vertical integration has been, has been dismantled and, and the economists speak of uh, the, the vertical disintegration of the value chain. That is, you sort of scattered around uh, everything you subcontracted, you outsource uh, mm -hmm. everything that could be outsourced. So it is not that you became more productive somehow, but, but that, that you put a lot of competitive pressure on the stakeholders of society. So this is why I think to a certain extent uh, you didn't have so much growth. It, it was simply a matter of re-engineering the firm, which created productivity gain, of course, but, 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 but less than what you had before when you had the steam engine or when you had electricity. So the first years of the Internet, of the Internet were disappointing from that perspective because, as, as Gordon says, there was not so much a new consumer society, but new ways of producing the same old things. With, with little inventivity, but in the way things are organized. And you were speaking about the Roman Empire. This is really what the Romans were good at, uh, creating an international division of labor that optimizes uh, the, the resource that they can have access to. And you were mentioning Joel Mokir, and Mokir was, say, was saying, you have really two modalities of economic growth. One is the Smithian way of growing, which mm -hmm. is Adam Smith's vision that you optimize the division of labor. And you have the Schumpeterian way of growing, which is you invent a new product, new process, new things, really. And the, the first years, the first few decades of the Internet were more Smithian in, in nature. And this is why I think... Uh, economic growth really well, was not there, and uh, and that would be my way of, of reading. Do you think we are on the verge of of two things, both Schumpeterian growth, but also that kind of growth which is not widely shared? So I I I think we can we can reasonably say that yes, uh, something new is is coming on. Uh, and, and, and it's very obviously difficult to know exactly uh, the, the amount of economic growth that it will generate and who will be the, the winner of that. But let me, let me try to elaborate a little bit. Uh, there's something which is correlated to uh, in, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, uh, which, which I think is, is a very powerful uh, force. Uh, and which is really new. In fact, you know, the, the big discovery, which is a way of using uh, uh, of the, 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 the brain, the human brain as a model to, to develop new AI technologies of the kind that have, you know, beaten uh, the, the Go best players and so on. They are really of, of the, fast, the past five years. It's really in 2012 that the big shocks to those technology came through. So we are speaking about something new. But I think we can try to interpret what is it that those technologies are trying to do and therefore sort of anticipate what, what can be the process ahead. Uh, what is it that those technologies are trying to do? I think in order to, to respond fully to this question, we need to understand what is it that we want the, 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 the society to, to produce. And I, I guess there's been a lot of ambiguity around this concept of post-industrial society, which I use myself, but which is very vague because what is a post-industrial society? It's something which replaces an industrial society, but it's very difficult to understand exactly what it is. So let me bring here sort of a new kind of reasoning. Uh, I think that the easiest way to, 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 to name what is a post-industrial society is to say that it's a service 
economy. You had the agrarian regime that I discussed, you had the industrial regime in which you started to work the, the matter after having worked the, 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 the earth somehow. And now the, the service economy is, 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 is a society in which it is the, the, the humans that you are trying to, to, to work upon. That is, the service economy is one in which you want to to, to care for the people uh, in health, in education, perhaps in 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 uh, in, uh, in recreative uh, uh, industries, and and it's not so much about producing new objects uh, as in the old industrial society, and perhaps over those, this transitional period that we have been witnessing, but it's really about taking care of the people. No, we have in France a very famous French economist called Jean Fourastier who said it's it's great, the service economy is great because you take care of people, it's a, it's a humanized society. It only has one problem, which is that economic growth in service economies is very slow. And because simply the, the time that you give to your client is really the value of the good that you produce and, and time, you know, can, cannot be you know, extended. So somehow uh, we enter a new steady state and, and he was very happy about that. He said, we'll take care of the people, less growth, but more quality. So remember what we said about Malthus and the demographic transition from quantity to quality. This is really what he had in mind. We're going to move from quantity of good produce to the quality of the relationship, the care that we can bring to the people, either again as teacher or as doctors or what have you. Now, uh, I think what the uh, AI revolution and, and perhaps, you know, more profoundly what the um, uh, digital revolution is trying to do is to get out of this trap of, of a low growth service economy. And how does it manage to do that? And I think we all understand that now after 10 years somehow. We see that in order to raise growth, you need economies of scale, as the economists say. That is, you need one doctor to be able to take care of many more patient than he used to do in the old service model. And this is where the information technology comes in. If you become as a patient a set of information, if you become as a human, you know, a, a, a number of data that can be processed by AI, then you see that increasing returns to scale can really foster I will be able to monitor many more clients. Maybe I will be able to, to educate many more patients when they become informations that I can handle on the screen. And I think this is somehow the promise, and with a lot of quotes, of this new age that we are entering in. But is that a world of, of broad aggregate growth? Where, where, the, where the average person, of course, doesn't really feel like their living standards are rising. So that's the big question. And let me simply answer by saying that there are two scenarios. One scenario is that it keeps going on as it did over the past 30 years. That is, you have a few genius in the Silicon Valley that in, who invent new apps that allow you to take care of yourself. Just with the app, you can you can be cured just by the app. You know exactly uh, what is, if you're sick or not, and you sort of self, uh, you know, uh, cure yourself. Or you can learn new language. You can teach to yourself, and and it's really the app that does the work. And in that scenario, which is more or less what happened uh, over the past thirty years, all the wealth is gathered at the very top of society. 
And of course, the, 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 the Bill Gates and, and so on, they will have people working for them. They will have doctors, they will have lawyers, they will have hairdressers, and those people themselves will have new domesticity. So you will have sort of circles of rising inequality with the, the human condition really concentrated at the very top of society and, and, the, and the further down the, the chain of value you, you go down and the more algorithms, uh, the more you know, computers you will have to take care of yourself. That's one scenario which is, uh, which is terrible. This is a society right. where you have no middle class and, and you have the rising inequalities of the kind that have been described in the statistic of the last uh, 30 or 40 years. Now you have another scenario, and I, I, I want to be optimistic on that, in which you, you don't have that. You have, you know, new ways to give nurses, uh, educators, means of being more productive with their client, with their patient, with their student. That is, you can imagine that nurses, not necessarily doctors, can rely upon a diagnosis and, and do the first thing, the first steps, and, 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 and sort of use those technology as a leverage that will raise their productivity. And if that happens, you will have a new middle class. Uh, in fact, the past is, is more or less you know, a source of, 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 of optimism because it often happens like that. You, you often have more complementarity than you thought of, but it is not written down. I mean, somehow, if we want the second process to happen, that is giving more ways to the people in the middle of the distribution to become more productive, we need to think about it in our teaching system, in the way we, you know, we train the, the teachers and the doctors to use those technologies, because if, if they are not able to, that, to do that transformation by themselves, then you will have the killing app that will replace them. So well, it's a struggle. It's entirely it's possible, not- though, that we, we get that first scenario. And that's and that's sort of what I find you know, particularly interesting about the book is thinking about society operating under that first scenario where you have a very bifurcated society. In that situation, if you have in the past societies built on the expectation of not just being wealthy but having a rising living standard and more opportunity, what replaces economic growth in that world? If we don't have growth. And, you know, I suppose if you want to be philosophical, if we have no growth and no God, what is society built on? I think, I think this, it has to reinvent itself exactly the way our societies reinvent themselves in the demographic regime that I mentioned. And, and, and there are so many things that you, that you can do. Uh, you know, when, when Keynes, the, the, the great economic um, uh, thinker, uh, thought about the, third, the, 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 the evolution of the 20th century, he said, well, at the beginning of the 21st century, we shall work two or three hours a day. We'll take care of what really matters, that is culture, that is metaphysical questions, uh, um, whatever. You know, there's, there's many things that we can think about uh, which, you know, could completely rebalance uh, uh, the, the way we live. But, but another way of asking the question is somehow different. Assuming that people think that labor work is important, how do we handle that if there is no pay rise that we can offer them to motivate them? Until now, the way it has been functioning since the early 80s, uh, let, let me step back. In, in, the 20, in the 20th century, Henry Ford you know, discovered something extraordinary, which was to promise pay increase 
to 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 his workers in exchange for doing the right job, and and that was a sort of loop between economic growth rewards and somehow a way of indexing the situation of the working classes upon economic growth. What happened after 1970 was that there was no more growth anymore. So the 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 the, the way the economy functioned was not work and you will be increased, but work or you will be unemployed. So there was something like stick instead of carrots. And and that's a, an important point of the book. I think we don't need stick to motivate people in a no-growth environment. We can promise them to have more responsibility. We can, you know, we can improve the quality of work, and 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 we need to think about. Right. So it doesn't need. So it doesn't mean the case that a period of weak economic growth, at least as the kind of growth experienced by most people, that you don't believe that will necessarily produce an unhappy society. And it seems to me that the economic research on that is mixed at best. Yeah, no, economic research is mixed on that, and, and, and it's between psychology and sociological analysis and so on. But, you know, when you look at countries like Denmark in Europe, people are, are fairly happy. And, and the reason why they are happy is because work is not a source of stress. You can work part time if you want and come back. There, there is more, you know, there's, there's more flexibility, not in the bad sense of the world, which is uh, you, you need to be, you know, to be all, always on, online to try to get a job. But there's, there's more way of thinking of the relationship between the effort that you produce and the reward that you have. Until now, the, the game was you produce like art and either you become in the top one person or I fire you. And we need to think in different ways. And again, you know, think of a young guy, he starts a career, there's a lot of skill that he can acquire. It's very important. Vocational training is very important. He can get more responsibilities. There's many ways, you know, which 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 are different from the way we think about it that can be invented. So I think, and I don't have a simple answer really, except to say that we did this kind of transformation, you know, massive transformation once in the 19th century with this demographic transition, starting from the world of quantity to go to world of quality. I think this needs to be reinvented uh, within the within the firms to, to give more autonomy, to, to put less stress perhaps, to, to allow to take a break, a sabbatical break more often, to retrain yourself. There's, there's something of this kind of rewards that needs to be invented. You know, if you work well, I'll give you six months of break so that you can learn new tricks, come back, and so on and so forth. That's where we need to think in but, a no-growth environment. But you, but you would say, though, as, and we're sort of at, getting at the end, that you would imagine that a healthy society would still be built around work. Now, what that work is may may change. How many hours we work may change the reward, but it will be still structured around something that we could recognize at work versus a society where robots do most of the work. You have a few people who own the robots and the rest of us get a universal basic income. The, the former example, one still fundamentally built around work. I mean, do you still think that is sort of the the yeah. ideal, and then we'll have a much healthier society if that's what it's built around. Yeah, yeah. I, I wouldn't say it's ideal, but I think this is, uh, you know, the state of our societies is that work remains very important. This is a way by which you live among others. 
you you become creative. So the bread and circus, let's say, version of the modern world in which you know you just uh, you just uh, idle and and you get to what is needed to to feed yourself and and to watch the circus that is to get a, uh, to get HBO or Netflix for free. I mean this kind of thing. I, I don't think that all societies are really for that. No, are willing to go along those lines. So I'm I'm, I'm very eager to think about. The way we can reinvent work in in the modern ages, and 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 to to think about other ways to motivate people or to make a happy life than than what has been going on for the past 50 years, which is again work hard or, or be dismissed, and even the way it worked before, which is work hard and you will have you know a, a new TV set. I think it, it is already obsolete as well. We we need to offer. And the human beings' way to to enrich their lives, and I think that can be done within the, the the work society. My guest today has been Daniel Cohen, author of The Infinite Desire for Growth. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you.